Section 3 of History of the Jews in Russia and Poland, Volume 2, From the Death of Alexander I Until the Death of Alexander III, 1825-1894, by Shimon Dubnov, translated by Israel Friedlander. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by S.S. Kim, Seoul, South Korea. Chapter 13 the military despotism of Nicholas I. Part 3. 5. The codification of Jewish disabilities. No sooner had the conscription new case been issued than the bureaucrats of St. Petersburg began to apply themselves in the hidden recesses of their chancelleries to a new civil code for the Jews which was to supersede the antiquated statute of 1804. The work passed through a number of departments. The projected enactment was framed by the Jewish Committee, which had been established in 1823 for the purpose of bringing about a reduction of the number of Jews in the monarchy, and consisted of cabinet ministers and the chiefs of departments. Originally, the department chiefs had elaborated a draft covering 1,230 clauses, a gigantic code of disabilities, evidently founded on the principle that in the case of Jews, everything is forbidden which is not permitted by special legislation. The dimension of the draft was such that even the government was appalled and decided to turn it over to the ministerial members of the committee. Modified in shape and reduced in size, the code was submitted in 1834 to the Department of Laws, forming part of the Council of State, and after careful discussion by the Department of Laws, was brought up at the plenary sessions of the Council. The ministerial draft, though smaller in bulk, was marked by such severity that the Department of Laws found it necessary to tone it down. The ministers, with the exception of the Minister of Finance, had proposed to transfer all Jews within a period of three years from the villages to the towns and townlets. The Department of Laws considered this measure too risky, pointing to the White Russian expulsion of 1823 which had failed to produce the expected results, and while it has ruined the Jews, it does not in the least seem to have improved the conditions of the villagers. The plenum of the council agreed with the Department of Laws that the proposed expulsion of the Jews from the villages being extremely difficult of execution and being of problematic benefit should be eliminated from the statute and should be stopped even there where it had been decreed but not carried into effect. The report was laid before the Tsar, who attached to it the following resolution. Where this measure of expulsion had been started, it is inconvenient to repeal it, but it shall be postponed for the time being in the governments in which no steps towards it have as yet been made. For a number of years, this resolution hung like the sword of Damocles over the heads of the rural jury. 
Less yielding was the Tsar's attitude on the question of the partial enlargement of the Pale of Settlement. The Department of Laws had suggested to grant the merchants of the First Guild the right of residence in the Russian interior in the interest of the exchequer and big business. At the general meeting of the Council of State, only a minority, 13, voted for the proposal. The majority, 22, argued that they had no right to violate the time-honored tradition dating from the time of Peter the Great, which bars the Jews from the Russian interior, that to admit them would produce a very unpleasant impression upon our people, which, on account of its religious notions and its general estimate of the moral peculiarities of the Jews, has become accustomed to keep aloof from them and to despise them, that the countries of Western Europe, which had accorded full citizenship to the Jews, cannot serve as an example for Russia, partly because of the incomparably larger number of Jews living here, partly because our government and people, with all their well-known tolerance, are yet far from that indifference with which certain other nations look upon religious matters. After marking his approval of the last words by the marginal exclamation, Thank God, the Tsar disposed of the whole matter in the following brief resolution. This question has been determined by Peter the Great. I dare not change it. I completely share the opinion of the 22 members. While on this occasion the Tsar endorsed the opinion of the Council as represented by its majority, in case in which it proved favorable to the Jews, he did not hesitate to set it aside. Thus, the Department of Laws, as part of the Council of State, and following in its wake, the Council itself had timidly suggested to Nicholas to comply in part with the plea of the Jews for a mitigation of the rigors of conscription. But the imperial verdict read, to be left as heretofore. Nicholas remained equally firm on the question of the expulsion from Kiev. The Department of Laws, guided by the previously mentioned representation of the local governor, favored the postponement of the expulsion, and 14 members of the plenary council agreed with the suggestion of the department and resolved to recommend it to the benevolent consideration of His Majesty. In other words, to request the Tsar to revoke the painful ukase. But 15 members rejected all such propositions on the ground that, as far as that question was concerned, the imperial will was unmistakable, the Tsar having decided the matter in a sense unfavorable to the Jews. In a similar manner, numerous other decisions of the Council of State were dictated not so much by inner conviction as by fear of the clearly manifest imperial will, which no one dared to cross. Under these circumstances, the entire draft of the statute passed through the Council of State. In its session of March 28, 1835, the Council voted to submit it to the Emperor for his signature. On this occasion, a solitary and belated voice was raised in defense of the Jews, 
without evoking an echo. A member of the council, Admiral Greig, who was brave enough to swim against the current, submitted a special opinion on the proposed statute, in which he advocated a number of alleviations in the intolerable legal status of the Jews. Greig put the whole issue in a nutshell. Are the Jews to be suffered in the country or not? If they are, then we must abandon the system of hampering them in their actions and in their religious customs and grant them at least equal liberty of commerce with others. For in this case, we may anticipate more good from their gratitude than from their hatred. Should, however, the conclusion be reached that the Jews ought not to be tolerated in Russia, then the only thing to be done is to banish them all without exception from the country into foreign lands. This might be more useful than to allow this estate to remain in the country and to keep it in a position which is bound to arouse in them continual dissatisfaction and resentment. It need scarcely be added that the voice of the queer admiral found no hearing. Nor did the Jewish people manage to get a hearing. Stunned by the uninterrupted succession of blows and moved by the spirit of martyrdom, Russian Jewry kept its peace during those dismal years. Yet, when the news of an impending general regulation of the Jewish legal status began to leak out, a section of Russian Jewry became astir. For to anticipate a blow is more excruciating than to receive one, and it was quite natural that an attempt should be made to stay the hand which was lifted to strike. Towards the end of 1833, the Council of State received, as part of the material bearing on the Jewish question, two memoranda, one from the Kahal of Vilna, signed by six elders, and another from Littman Feigin of Chernikov, well known in administrative circle as merchant and public contractor. The Kahal of Vilna declared that the repressive policy pursued during the last few years by the Jewish committee had thrown a large part of Jewish people into utmost disorder and had made the Jews shiver and shudder at the thought that a general Jewish statute had been drafted by the same committee and had now been submitted to the Council of State for revision. The petitioners go on to say that, weighed down by a succession of cruel discriminations affecting not only their rights but also their mode of discharging military service, the Jews would succumb to utter despair, did they not repose their hopes in the benevolence of the Tsar who, on his recent trip through the western provinces, had expressed it to the deputies of the Jewish communes his imperial satisfaction with the loyalty to the throne displayed by the Jews during the Polish insurrection of 1831. The Kahal of Vilna, therefore, implored the Council of State to turn its attention to this unfortunate and maligned people and to stop all further persecutions. A more emphatic note of protest is sounded in the Memorandum of Feigin. By a string of references to the latest government measures, he demonstrates the fact that the Jewish people is hunted down not because of its moral qualities, but because of its faith. 
the Jews, faced by the new statute, had lost all hope for a better lot, inasmuch as the government has embarked upon this measure without having solicited the explanations or justifications of these people, whereas, according to the common legal procedure, even an individual may not be condemned without having been called upon to justify himself. The rebuke had no effect. The government preferred to render its verdict in absentia, without listening to counsel for the defense and without any safeguards of fair play. In line with this attitude, it also denied the petition of the Vilna Kahal to be allowed to send at least four deputies to the capital as spokesmen of the entire Jewish people for the purpose of submitting to the government their explanations and propositions concerning the reorganization of the Jews after having been presented with the draft of the statute. The final verdict was pronounced in the spring of 1835, and in April, the new statute concerning the Jews received the signature of the Tsar. This charter of disabilities, which was destined to operate for many decades, represents a combination of the Russian ground laws concerning the Jews and the restrictive bylaws issued after 1804. The pale of settlement was now accurately defined. It consisted of Lithuania and the southwestern provinces without any territorial restrictions, White Russia minus the villages, Little Russia minus the crown hamlets, New Russia minus Nikolaev and Sevastopol, the government of Kiev minus the city of Kiev, the Baltic provinces for the old settlers only, while the rural settlements on the entire 51st zone along the western frontier were to be closed to newcomers. As for the interior provinces, only temporary follows, limited to six weeks and to be certified by gubernatorial passports, were to be granted for the execution of judicial and commercial affairs, with the proviso that the travelers should wear Russian instead of Jewish dress. The merchants affiliated with the first and second guilds were allowed, in addition to visit the two capitals, the seaports, as well as the fairs of Nizhny Novgorod, Kharkov, and other big fairs for wholesale buying or selling. The Jews were further forbidden to employ Christian domestics for permanent employment. They could hire Christians for occasional services only, on condition that the latter live in separate quarters. Marriages at an earlier age than 18 for the bridegroom and 16 for the bride were forbidden under the pain of imprisonment, a prohibition which the defective legislation of births and marriages then in vogue made it easy to evade. The language to be employed by the Jews in their public documents was to be Russian or any other local dialect but under no circumstances the Hebrew language. The function of the Kahal, according to the statute, is to see to it that the instructions of the authorities are carried out precisely and that the state taxes and communal assessments are correctly remitted. The Kahal elders are to be elected by the community every three years from among persons who can read and write Russian 
subject to their being ratified by the gubernatorial administration. At the same time, the Jews are entitled to participation in the municipal elections. Those who can read and write Russian are eligible as members of the town councils and magistracies. The supplementary law of 1836 fixed the rate at one-third, excepting the city of Vilna, where the Jews were entirely excluded from municipal self-government. Synagogues may not be built in the vicinity of churches. The Russian schools of all grades are to be open to Jewish children who are not compelled to change their religion. Clause 106, a welcome provision in view of the compulsory method which had then become habitual. The coercive baptism of Jewish children was provided for in a separate enactment, the Statute on Conscription, which is declared to remain in force. In this way, the Statute of 1835 reduces itself to a codification of the whole mass of the preceding anti-Jewish legislation. Its only positive feature was that it put a stop to the expulsion from the villages which had ruined the Jewish population during the years 1804 to 1830. 6. The Russian censorship and conversionist endeavors. With all its discriminations, the promulgation of this general statute was far from checking the feverish activity of the government. With indefatigable zeal, its hands went on turning the legislative wheel and squeezing ever tighter the already unbearable vice of Jewish life. The slightest attempt to escape from its pressure was punished ruthlessly. In 1838, the police of St. Petersburg discovered a group of Jews in the capital with expired passports. These Jews, having extended their stay there a little beyond the term fixed for Jewish travelers, and the Tsar curtly decreed to be sent to serve in the penal companies of Kronstadt. In 1840, Heavy fines were imposed upon the landed proprietors in the great Russian governments for keeping over Jews on their estates. Considerable attention was bestowed by the government on placing the spiritual life of the Jews under police supervision. In 1836, a censorship campaign was launched against Hebrew literature. Hebrew books, which were then almost exclusively of a religious nature, such as prayer books, Bible and Talmud editions, rabbinic, Kabbalistic, and Hasidic writings, were then issuing from the printing presses of Vilna, Slavta, and other places, and were subject to a rigorous censorship exercised by Christians or by Jewish converts. Practically, every Jewish home library consisted of religious works of this type. The suspicion of the government were aroused by certain Jewish converts who had insinuated that the foreign editions of these works and those that had appeared in Russia itself prior to the establishment of a censorship were of an injurious character. As a result, all Jewish home libraries were subject to a search. Orders were given to deliver into the hands of the local police in the course of that year all foreign Hebrew prints, as well as the uncensored editions, 
published at any previous time in Russia, and to entrust their revision to dependable rabbis. These rabbis were instructed to put their stamp on the books approved by them and return the books not approved by them to the police for transmission to the Ministry of the Interior. The regulation involved the entire ancient Hebrew literature printed during the 16th, 17th, and 18th century prior to the establishment of the Russian censorship. In order to facilitate the supervision of the new publications or reprints from all the editions, all Jewish printing presses which existed at that time in various cities and towns were ordered closed, and only those of Vilna and Kiev, to which special censors were attached, were allowed to remain. As the Hebrew orders of antiquity or the Middle Ages did not fully anticipate the requirements of the Russian censors, many classic works were found to contain passages which were thought to be at variance with imperial enactments. By the UK's of 1836, all books of this kind, circulating in tens of thousands of copies, had to be transported to St. Petersburg under a police escort to await their final verdict. The procedure, however, proved too cumbersome, and in 1837, the emperor, complying with the petitions of the governors, was graciously pleased to command that all these books be delivered to the flames on the spot. This autodafer was to be witnessed by a member of the gubernatorial administration and a special dependable official dispatched by the governor for the sole purpose of making a report to the central government on every literary conflagration of this kind and forwarding to the Ministry of the Interior one copy of each annihilated book. But even this was not enough to satisfy the lust of the Russian censorship. It was now suspected that even the dependable rabbis might pass many a book as harmless, though its contents were subversive of the public will. As a result, a new UK case was issued in 1841, placing the rabbinical censors themselves on the government control. All uncensored books, including those already passed as harmless, were ordered to be taken away from the private libraries and forwarded to the censorship committees in Vilna and Kiev. The latter were instructed to attach their seals to the approved books and deliver to the flames the books condemned by them. Endless wagon load of these confiscated books could be seen moving toward Vilna and Kiev, and for many years afterwards the literature of the people of the book, covering a period of three millenniums, was still languishing in the jail of censorship, waiting to be saved from or to be sentenced to a fiery death by a Russian official. It is almost unnecessary to add that the primitive method of solving the Jewish problem by means of conversion was still the guiding principle of the government. The Russian legislation of that period teems with regulations concerning apostasy. The surrender of the synagogue to the church seemed merely a question of time. In reality, however, the government itself believed but half-heartedly 
in the sincerity of the converted Jews. In 1827, the Tsar put down in his own handwriting the following resolution. It is to be strictly observed that the baptismal ceremony shall take place unconditionally on a Sunday and with all possible publicity, so as to remove all suspicion of a pretended adoption of Christianity. Subsequently, this watchfulness had to be relaxed in the case of those who avoid publicity in adopting Christianity, more especially in the case of the Cantonists, who have declared their willingness to embrace the orthodox faith under the effect, we may add, of the tortures in the barracks. Sincerity under these circumstances was out of the question, and in 1831, the battalion chaplains were authorized to baptize these helpless creatures even without applying for permission to the ecclesiastic authorities. The barrack missionaries were frequently successful among these unfortunate military prisoners. In the imperial rescripts of that period, the characteristic expression, privates from among the Jews remaining in the above faith, figures as a standing designation for that group of refractory and incorrigible soldiers who disturbed the officially pre-established harmony of epidemic conversion by remaining loyal to Judaism. But among the civilian Jews, who had not been detached from their Jewish environment, apostasy was extraordinarily rare, and law after law was promulgated in vain, offering privileges to converts or leniency to criminals who were ready to embrace the orthodox creed. End of section 3